Yeah, have a seat. I want to introduce our speaker this morning, uh, Joey Chase. Most of you know Joey. Some of you may not. I don't know. But he, <laughs> uh, life with Joey is never dull. Nope. It may be lots of things, but it will not be dull. And Martha and I thank God every day for bringing Joey into our family. Well, not every day, but pretty often. Yeah. We, we frequently thank God for bringing him into our lives. And uh, some of you may not know some of these things about Joey. He, he's from the very beginning of our church. Uh, he's been an elder. He's on our board of directors. He volunteers, uh, what, a couple of times a week, a uh, month at least, for the children's ministry. So he's worked in there for years and years and, and uh, served behind the scenes. There's a lot of things that he does that he never gets credit for. And uh, he also uh, has taught our, our class, uh, and we're just grateful for him. He's an incredible father uh, to his boys and a great friend of mine. I love him like a son. Welcome, Joey. Will you please? Thanks. Thank you for that kind introduction, Clark. Clark has always been, uh, my father died when I was 13, and Clark was uh, really been the ideal earthly replacement for my father, truly, and a huge spiritual influence on me. So thank you for that. Um, a couple, just a quick disclaimer, last week I hosted and I had the microphone uh, muted and it was totally my fault. And I just wanted to mention that because I feel like the audio guys took the hit for that, but it was my fault. So <laughs> this time when, uh, when Gallo told me, hey, do you want to turn off the mic and turn it back on? I was like, I'm just gonna keep it on the whole time. So uh, anyway, <laughs> um, <clears throat> what I'm here to do today is talk about something uh, somewhere that I believe the church is going and, and I have a very, um, I feel this conclusively, and so I want to share. I want to share that, and in doing that, I want to explain a little bit about how I believe I hear from God, how I communicate with God. I think that's a very interesting topic because I think everyone has their own individual, unique way that God relates to them per their personality, and I feel like it's as it's as unique as the prints on our finger, um, on our fingers. And so, in doing that, I, I want to just briefly share a little bit about that, um, and then I want to talk about why I feel so strongly that, that, that our church and the church globally, in large part, is going to go down this direction. It's very energizing. It's exciting to me. Uh, and it all comes down, I feel like there's one word that summarizes it. So I'm going to share what that word is. I'm going to give the definition. And I sort of redefined it based on a lot of research. Uh, and then I'm going to talk about the practical nature of that word and how it, it, it's changed my, my perspective, even in the last two to three months. Um, so, so first, first of all, what, when, when Bill uh, Snell did that sermon last, last Sunday, uh, it was the perfect precursor to this sermon. It was like, it blew me away. Um, and I, I honestly, um, so what I did was I went back and I played it and I wrote down word for word some of the things he said near the end of that. Uh, so I'm going to read those to you. <laughs> So Snell was saying, shouldn't we be leading the way with an adventuresome spirit, with a confidence that we should be going, not just staying, not just camping out, uh, that we should be reaching out, that we should be advancing the kingdom, we should be leading the way, not because of compulsion and not because of duty, but because the opportunity is there, the mountain is there to be moved in Jesus' name. And when he was saying that, I thought it's... I feel like I, I, I sort of know, have an idea of what that's going to look like and how we do that, and I almost felt like, do you remember, this is going way back, any of you remember a show called Welcome Back, Cotter? 
Anyone? Shot in the 70s? Guy named Arnold, Arnold Horshack. I felt like Arnold Horshack in the background when he said that because for those of you who don't know Arnold Horshack, he, so welcome back, Cotter, just a quick premise. Uh, shot in a uh, classroom um, back in the, you know, in the 70s, and Mr. Cotter is the teacher. Uh, actually, it was uh, uh, Vinnie Barbarino was um, John Travolta. It was one of his first gigs. Anyway, Horshack was this gangly guy in the back, and every time uh, the teacher would ask a question, Horshack would raise his hand way up and, Oh, 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 screaming as loud as he could. You, you had to just let him answer the question because he was going to explode. He was so excited. Uh, this was a sort of, we'll call it Horshackian moment for me when he said that. <laughs> I thought, I'll have to wait a week and then I'll share what it is. Um, but it's exciting and it's excited me. Um, so let me start with this. Just, it, I think it's important to explain how I relate to God because what I've been learning about this topic started like last June. And it, it, it shared a pattern with so many big moments in my life that, that where God showed up and ended up, I felt like I followed him, and it worked out, and he totally saved me, you know? And I shared, um, and I'm not going to get into a lot of detail, I did that in, the, in a podcast on the Sunday school, uh, the Sunday class, uh, where I talked about just living on the edge, how my life and Wendy's life, since she married me, sorry, Wendy, uh, has been a lot of serendipity, a lot more living on the edge than I wanted, than I really asked for. But in the end, when I look back, I have so many miracles. I mean, I have so many things that I know he comes through on, and uh, you could never convince me otherwise. And I have pearls in my pocket that I would never trade for anything. That's the bottom line. So this, this is something that formed that same pattern. <clears throat> and it started with, uh, it started with this, well, so it started with the, this frustration with this COVID and, and uh, the turn in our culture where, it feels like everyone's got to walk on eggshells. Languages get changed. Now they change the meaning of a certain word. If you say that, these, these people are offended. Uh, you might get canceled here. You might get canceled there. You better watch what you say. Um, and then COVID comes along, and it gets so much worse. And you know, professionally, for me, it was a big rug pull. It totally screwed me up. It changed everything. Uh, so during this frustration, I thought, you know, let's just get a dog. Let's get a dog. You know, I mean, what, what the heck? I, I used to travel a lot. I thought, you know, dog is impractical. Best thing we ever did was get that dog. And uh, we call him our, our light in the darkness because that dog takes you away from the world for a while, you know? He's just always so happy to see you. So one of the things that I would do is I would walk this dog. And, and just a little bit of background on this dog. Uh, this is not a normal dog. This is a wild dog. He comes from a, a pack of wild dogs that live up in South Carolina and Georgia. And because of that, he has similar communication and, and, and travel patterns that are like wolves. It, I, for those of you who don't know, I lived and worked with wolves for about five years in my life, a good part of five years. Um, and I was really uh, fascinated by the way they communicate, much largely different than dogs, and the way they travel. So for example, with this dog, when you take him for a walk, it's, you don't take him for a walk, you take him hunting. It's all about hunting, right? And so when there's not lizards to eat or rabbits to chase, um, you get to, maybe when you get to an area where there's no hunting available because you're on a sidewalk and you're in between a couple of roads, he changes into this, this, this gate. He, he turns into, if I'm not hunting, I'm traveling. And he gets into this really efficient gate. Remember one time, you're just thinking about other stuff, and I'm looking at that gate, and it's just so, it's so fascinating to me because that pace, it's like when they, when they trot, their feet are in perfect cadence almost, and it's almost like when you see it, and some of you may have seen you know, coyotes when they're traveling or shots of wolves when they're traveling. It's so efficient. They use their tail like a rudder. And, and their feet just, it's like they're floating. And they, they can go, I mean, 150 miles plus a day. 
and, and the, the energy they expend is, is minimal. It's, it's almost like it seems biologically impossible. They're able to do impossible things with this pace. So I'm looking at that pace, and I'm, and I'm just thinking to myself, I just, I don't know, I felt like it was like something came to me, like that pace, you, Joey, you are finding your pace. And I thought, that's, that's cool, that's kind of neat, it's a neat thing, you know. So I move on, I'm thinking about other stuff. And in the same walk two blocks later, it was like the church is finding its pace. And I had been thinking about the church a lot uh, in months prior. Not at this moment I wasn't, it was like it came from out of nowhere. But I've been thinking a lot about the church because we've been going through, you know, a lot of changes and transitions and disruptions, not related to COVID and not related to the things I said about our culture, but at the same time. And it just was like, this is overwhelming. Like, what's the point of all this, honestly? Like, really, what is the point, you know? So when I heard that about the church is finding its pace, it was, it was more, it was pretty encouraging, I thought, but I didn't give it the, the weight that I later gave it months after thinking about that. We're finding our pace. I just kind of blew it off. Oh, that's neat. Thanks. That's cool. You know. So then I, I, I I'm, this is about two months later. <laughs> I do. I, I drive. I go to North Carolina a lot um, for business, and I. This is the first of those drives, and it was like after we were on quarantine. You remember it was how crazy it was. It was like you couldn't you couldn't go to the beach. You know. I mean, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Well, finally, I just you could get on the road. So I got on my car and out. I was just, it made me realize how much stuff was bottled up, you know, and I, I had the sunroof down, the windows were down, and I, I remember listening to uh, this song by the Allman Brothers. Everyone know the Allman Brothers, right? Um, I'm, I've never been an Allman Brothers fan, really, but uh, the song, Jessica, it's an instrumental song, and even if you don't like that song or you think it's overplayed, you have to appreciate that song. And I was like, this is a really good song. So next thing I know, I'm listening to this song, I'm playing the drums on the steering wheel. I'm having a heck of a good time in the car. This guy pulls up in a minivan to pass me, and he looks over, and he's like, whoa, that guy's having fun, you know? He passes me, and I didn't care. I was having so much fun. But here's the thing. I started thinking about it. I'm like, why am I that, having this much fun, you know? Why, you know? And I started realizing that what it was uh, is, so I started thinking about, um, I went to a concert, an Allman Brothers concert, and I, was, I just had such a great, at that moment, a memory of that concert. It was at Red Rocks Amphitheater. And some of you may have been there before, but it's, it's one of the best places in the world to see a music show. It's, it's a Red Rock natural amphitheater. The acoustics are fantastic. And I just remember being up on the grassy knoll, just dancing and not caring if I look like an idiot. Everyone else is dancing. They don't care if they look like an idiot. We all be idiots together and not care. There's just no, there's no self-consciousness. And I remember thinking, like, what did, what, why am I so fondly remembering this, you know, this moment? And, and uh, I realized that it was, what it was, it wasn't necessarily, yes, the music was great, yes, Red Rocks is fantastic, but what it was was that we didn't, no one cared. It felt so good not to feel self-conscious, and no one else felt self-conscious, and there was something that happened in that moment that was, that was excellent. And so in the process of that, I started thinking about how we need that so much. We need that release. We need to stop having to walk on eggshells, and we want those moments. And I was thinking more on a spiritual level um, about this COVID, and as I'm seeing cars drive by with luggage racks and thinking about the people that are leaving the cities and they're, and they're moving and people are shifting differently now, you know, the patterns are changing. And I'm thinking, why don't I give enough credit for the things that I know God is doing under the surface? Like, why am I not realizing? I know he's doing some cool stuff under this, with this, with this movement of people. So what's he going to do for the church? Like, he's not going to, the church isn't going to look the same. 
So I'm thinking about that for the first time, and I'm thinking about the pace thing again. And that's one of the ways he talks to me. He talks to me with these visuals because I remember them. And sometimes he puts me back to things that seemed uh, irrelevant or not big, but he keeps reminding me of them. It's like, what, why am I thinking about this again, you know? But then I start thinking about it. It takes me down this rabbit trail of thought. So I then remember uh, something. And think about the contrast now, how different our culture is between now and, say, even four years ago, you know? Or even, let's say, 2001, 9-11, how united we were as a culture, thinking about the political, social, and economic divides we're seeing now. And thinking about how people just, think about this, this time I'm listening to, it's another band, and the music, and it's a, it's a band called the Cafe Penguin Orchestra. And many of you have never heard of that band, maybe, but you've probably heard that song. Uh, it's the intro song, I believe, for Napoleon Dynamite. You've seen that movie. But what's cool about the Cafe Penguin Orchestra is that they play this music that just, it doesn't, there's no agenda, there's no, it's just music that just makes, everyone would like it. It's just great, happy music. And I remember thinking that when I heard it, and it compelled me to go on the website of the band. It, it was that impactful to me. It's not something I normally do. So I go on the website and I read about this band and how it was founded, and the story was fascinating. So the story was, the guy's father was, uh, back in 72, 73, he was in the south of France, and he ate some shellfish, and it made him sick, real sick. He had a high fever. He kept having these sort of hallucinations and dreams that he was in this sort of dystopian building, this gray block housing. And everyone was in each little room uh, staring at a screen, and there was a camera with a big eye looking at all of them. So they had no privacy. They had no, uh, they had nothing. It was pure loneliness. But everyone was stuck to these screens. And he's walking in there, but he can, he can kind of hear a little bit of sound. So he follows the sound until it gets louder and louder. It takes him out of the building, and he ends up on this dusty road. And you can imagine this guy walking down this dusty road with this dystopian landscape all around him, you know? Just imagine after a war, rumble and buildings, you know, that kind of a thing. He's walking through, but as he gets closer, he starts hearing the music, and he starts really being allured in, and it leads him to this ramshackled old cabin with these warm lights and this great sound spilling out into the darkness. And he walks in the building, and it's this warm and happy, and people are happy to see him, and they're playing music. And I'm just thinking, wow, that's the church. That's what the church should be like. And like that's, think about that contrast. We can relate to that dystopian contrast much more than we could have 10 years ago, four years ago. So I started thinking about that, and it took me down this rabbit trail that was very interesting. And in that rabbit trail, I started... Uh, I'm going to share something of interest here, because I came to the... Um, yeah. So I started thinking about... Here's what I started thinking about. What's the point of this? I'm sitting here, and my wife is worshiping, and sometimes I come in, and when she practices, I listen to her at worship. And... I was just out of nowhere, it came to me again. Like I was thinking about all the things I'd been thinking about, the Cafe Penguin Orchestra, the contrast, all that stuff. And in the process of, of thinking about that, it came to my mind that there's a word. And I was like, well, what's the word for this? Like, how do I summarize this? And before I even finished the sentence, it was like conviviality. The word is conviviality. And I thought, well, I, I don't even really know, I kind of know what conviviality means. I'm just picturing wine glasses somehow, picturing festivals, banquets, stuff like that, conviviality. But it intrigues me to, to look into the word conviviality. Like, what does this word mean, right? So I start looking up definitions, and I find that they're all a little bit different. There's no common definition. So I start doing a word search on it. I start studying the word and the history of the word. 
And I discover that it's a 17th century word. It's, it's not something that's in the Old Testament or in the Bible. Um, but it was de developed in France, this word. It was established in France. And I have the de definition that I thought was closest, but still not sufficient. And I think we have that up here. Do we have the screenshot of the definition of conviviality? Aha. Okay. No, that's not. That's my definition. Can we do the non? Let's. You can just drop it. Can we take that one off? That's too early for that one. <laughs> I'll read it to you. It doesn't matter if it's on there. Uh, the definition of conviviality is the quality of being friendly and lively. Friendliness. The conviviality of the evening, for example, would be the use of conviviality, right? So, <clears throat> then I started looking at and thinking about it. I started thinking about what is it about conviviality that makes it different from any other festive thing, any other dinner, any other, why, why would one evening be a convivial dinner and one evening might not have a convivial dinner? What's the difference? What makes conviviality, what's the secret sauce in conviviality? And I started realizing when I researched, there was all this debate around this word, conviviality, like people were arguing about it and like it had this huge, um, there was this huge cultural clash with it and, and where it came from was the Industrial Revolution People were worried during the Industrial Revolution about mechanization. They were worried that mechanization would separate the communal nature of humans. That you would, because of all these complex tools, there would be people who understood how things were made and those tools and then those who didn't. And I, and I never thought about this, but think about this for a second. Prior to that, in the community, you kind of had some commonality with just about everyone because you kind of knew how everything was made, you know? I know how your jacket's made, they tan the leather, I know how, because that guy does that in my neighborhood. I know how this is made, I understand that. We can relate to one another, we're living with each other. Uh, and as a, someone had been in the coffee business for, for years, um, you know, that, that premise, uh, it, it was, you know, there was a coffee roaster in every town, in every village, you know? I mean, uh, that was just a normal thing. Then when you had the Industrial Revolution, it was one big company making, roasting coffee and shipping it out all over the world. Um, to, throughout the country. And so people started defining tools as non-convivial tools. A drill, a drill press, for example, would be considered a non-convivial tool. Then there were convivial tools. So people tried to fix this problem the way humans do by humanizing it and making rules and saying, here's how you be convivial. You do this, this, and this, and this. That introduces guilt. That it just re it doesn't work, right? That doesn't work. So how do you make it? You, you turn it into, there's a term, they made a term called convivialism. Which again, just once you do an ism, it's a system, it ruins the word, it just destroys the word. So, so that didn't work, I, and I think the problem is that people were missing the essence of it, of conviviality. And the essence of it is lack of self-consciousness, like not, being, not thinking about yourself so much. So how do you get there? How do you get to a place where everyone together doesn't really think about themselves, it's natural for them, to not use energy thinking about themselves and to project all that extra energy with each other, right? And it makes you more authentic. It makes you not filled with pride, wickedness, greed, all those things you don't want. They're not part of your nature in Christ. Um, and when you get to that point where you're, where you're not caught up in yourself, you're free to share. So I thought about, like, what, 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 what is, you know, I thought, about what does that mean and how does that work? So I started thinking about the fact that we're all one body. We're all one body in Christ. And what does that do? And that's when I spoke on communion, and it changed my my perspective totally on communion because I began to think that, you know, when Christ died, it's like we became one with his body 
and the leavening was gone. So we are now made of unleavened bread. So we don't have to think about asking for forgiveness for our sins every day. We don't have to think about the clothes we're wearing. Are we, you know, are we holy? Are we, we don't have to think about any of that stuff. And so what happens? Where does that energy go? What happens when you don't have to think about all that stuff? And, and I started thinking about the power of that, the power of being one body. And when Jesus talked about the greater things he can do because he's going to leave, because he's going to die. And I thought about the body, how big the body is. Think about how big the body is. It goes all the way from London to New York to L.A. to the smallest islands in Micronesia, right? The body of Christ. Because we're all one body. We're all branches on the vine. So where's the, what's the power in, like, in that? And what does it look like? And how does it manifest? And so I started thinking about that premise. And then I was thinking about how Jesus said, I am not of the world, but I am the light of the world. And I started thinking about some of those scriptures. And then I ran into... Something Paul said, and it made me realize he's having the same thought pattern I am. I think he is. I think he was. I think he was having the same thought pattern. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to share that with you, but first I just want to mention, um, and we don't have to put this up on the, on the wall, but I was, I was looking at some of the scriptures Jesus said about the light and the lamp and us being the lamp, and I'm going to read those a little bit in a little bit. But I noticed that in Luke 36, where he talks about that, right after that, I wasn't even looking for it, in Luke 37... I discovered what had happened with Jesus going to a non-convivial lunch. And uh, that was an interesting thing. And that was where he was invited to lunch uh, by the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers. And first of all, he starts off, he doesn't wash his hands for the lunch, right? And they had these sort of, they sort of had this preoccupation with, these, with purity, you know, with clean, cleansing of the hands, which, which wasn't a commandment. And it, it was just a rule they had added. But he, he points out, in a way, he's pointing out how non-convivial this, this lunch is because everyone thinks about themselves. You know, they're not thinking about anything other than themselves, and they're not checking their hearts. He even compares the Pharisees to, you know, uh, dirty, you know, plates and cups that are perfectly clean on the outside but dirty in the inside. You know, it's like he's saying, check your heart. And it made me think about, you know, God and how he just cares so much about the heart. Look what he did with King David. You know, like the horrible things David did, but he, look what he did. He promoted David. And he did all these things, and the heart is so important. Uh, and then he's telling the scribes, you know, you guys, you, you, you have all this knowledge, but you don't use it. You give everyone a cold shoulder. And, and then the lawyers, you, you, you weigh people down. Uh, and, and he talks about greed and wickedness, right? So then I see Paul talk about this in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 through 8. Um, here's what he says. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you, in fact, are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let's celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And I thought it was so interesting that he used the word sincerity the word sincerity, what he's saying, how do you be authentic? How do you be a really sincere person who really cares about that person when they walk in the room, when you're at a feast, when you're with people, whether it's dining or not? How do you be truly sincere? It can, I think it can only happen really ultimately through, through grace, through seeing things through the lens of grace where you know that your favor is unearned. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. And, and, and I think that what happened, the power in that is, is I think that's what called... You know, and, and I think also Paul is, I, I suspect he's referring to that Luke 36 because he uses the same terminology. He talks about greed and wickedness. And, and the second you, you, you abide by the vine, the second you really recognize that you have an unleavened nature, and the, more, the farther you go down that road, the more welcoming you become to other people. And think about, think about this for a second. Um, one thing I was going to mention on a side note, when I was doing some of this research, I was thinking about feasts, and I came across... 
In Leviticus 23, there are, there are seven feasts, and Clark has preached on the feasts. Uh, but they have a term called moed, which is the creator's appointed times. And there is specifically uh, a, a theologian, a Jewish theologian, made this quote. I thought this was interesting. And this is how he looked at these, these, these feasts. These appointed times are holy or set aside because there are also times when God meets with us. He connects with us on our level during these feasts and festivals. So he sees the feast as a time where God connected with us, like in the Old Testament. Um, I, see the, I see the feast as representing being together in a community. And, and what does that look like? And it looks like conviviality. It looks like um, creating an atmosphere where people don't have to think about themselves and be self-conscious. Um, and this is how we become the light. So I want to mention something. Um, I, here's what I was thinking about. I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the movie, The Titanic. Remember the movie, The Titanic? Uh, you had Jack and Rose. Um, so, so Rose is, you know, the wife of this really wealthy guy on the Titanic. Um, handsome guy, you know, all the money in the world. You'd think she'd be really happy, but she's totally miserable. Um, and why is she miserable? I was thinking about that, you know. Why is she miserable? I think she's miserable for a lot of reasons, but the core of it is that she's always having to think about herself. She's always having to think, which dish do I use? Which fork do I use at which time? Are my clothes, you know, all the pressure, is my, are my clothes perfectly pressed? Is everything tied tightly? Is everything, you know, and it's one thing to do that sometimes for special events, but it's another thing to live under that yoke all the time and the pressure that that creates. And so why does she like Jack so much? Is he, you know, he's a handsome young guy, he's adventurous, he's fun. Yeah, I'm sure it's all those things, right? But why does she really like him so much? I think the reason she really likes him so much is because he doesn't make her have to think about herself. She can take a break from that world, you know? When, when, when he dances with, uh, when she dances with Jack, she doesn't really have to worry about the steps, you know? So it's a really interesting, in the Titanic, there's a really interesting picture of kind of what non-conviviality looks like and then what conviviality looks like. So can you play, we've got a, a, a one, a, a one minute clip of the Titanic, just to, just to illustrate this a little bit. Start from the outside and work your way in. He knows that. Next to TP Brandy is in the smoking room. Well, join me in a brandy, gentlemen. What a good idea. Yes. Now they retreat into a cloud of smoke and congratulate each other on being masters of the universe. Ladies, thank you for the pleasure of your company. Oh, can I escort you back to the cabin? No, I'll stay here. You're still my best girl, Cora. Go with me. Don't think. Okay, so that's kind of an interesting illustration I was thinking about a lot with conviviality and what it is. And I, I think about, like, when someone goes in, like, you think about the average person, what their vision is of going to church. Like, it scares them, right? And why? why? I mean, what would they say about it? I, I think if you really boil it down, what they're most concerned about is themselves. How are they going to look? You know, how are they going to look? Are they wearing the right clothes? Are they judging me? Am I being judged? What's going on there? Why is that? Why, is the, why, is the, why has the church gotten to that point when we're all one body? 
Why are we making that one person so relevant? When we're all one body, why, why is that happening, right? And so I guess my point in all this um, is that I think because of the contrast in our world, how dark the darkness is, the light is about to be so much brighter. And I think that through grace, we have the ability to embrace authentic convivialism, right? And not convivialism, that's the wrong word. Um, authentic conviviality. Uh, and I w so what I did was I redefined what I think conviviality is. And I really do believe this is a much better definition than is out there. And if, I, if Noah Webster was still alive and I had his cell phone number, I would call him up and I would convince him to change the definition. Uh, so could you please put that up there? This is my definition. Sincere celebration in the vitality of life with one another. The important part is this. Uniquely void of self-consciousness. And I go to say that, uh, you know, that's, that's the thing about this. Um, you, people associate conviviality with drinking a lot, and you think about what, is, what does drinking do, right? Um, drinking just makes you lose your inhibitions. It does make you less self-conscious, but you can go a little too far with it. You can look like a complete idiot if you overdrink, right? So it's kind of a plagiaristic version of what true conviviality is. The truest version can only be obtained, in my opinion, really, ultimately through grace. I really think that's true, and I think that's a huge opportunity we have, and I think that's one of the ways God's going to change churches. It's going to be through this, we're going to be that warm cabin, and that's going to lure people into this. And it's a great foundation. We talk about building on the foundation of God's love in that song. Um, that's what lures people in, and, and it's honest, and it's, it's authentic. People are, are craving it. Um, so, so what does it look like? So here's an example. I'm going to give a couple examples here um, of how's, what does this really mean? I mean, how is this just not something we talk about, and then it just was, yeah, that was interesting, and then it goes away. It fades off into the, into the darkness. Um, so for me, it's, it's had a huge impact. Uh, I look at communion differently. I'm more excited. I feel optimistic about the church. Um, you know, I would honestly, it's influenced things in this church already just from us talking about conviviality. It's influenced this background. We were like, hey, how do we make this warmer? You know, I was thinking about that warm cabin, and we were talking about it. And it, and it influenced this background. How do we make it not a nightclub vibe, you know, with the lights and the whole nightclub thing? I mean, you know, it's just that's not, that's not a warm environment. So this was kind of like a guiding focal point for us, you know? Um, so then, then, then I started thinking about, <coughs> you know, all the different things, all the different things that the church is going to be able to do with this. And, but then I thought on a practical level, on a personal level, like what does conviviality look like? What is conviviality and what isn't conviviality? And I want to share a few things about that that I think make a big difference. Um, I think the thing is, I've found that... Um, in, in, in applying this practically, I found a couple of things that have happened to me that, that I think were convivial, what I would call a convivial moment, right? Um, and I think of it as like a reset moment, where my perspective changed immediately. I get away from the traffic-y, grouchy, annoyed with people vibe, you know, and all of a sudden something changes. And I'll give you an example of when that happened, the first time, where it was almost felt supernatural to me. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm at the UPS store, I'm getting ready to drop a package off at like 4.59, and it, it closes at 5, and the world's going to end if I don't get it there, in a way, right? So it's all that pressure, but I just, so I'm driving up, and there's two parking spaces here, uh, and I kind of cut across, there's a lady pulling in, I kind of cut across her to let her into the better spot, but she doesn't know that. She sees it as a violation of her space. She honks the horn, kind of behind her eyes, cusses me out. And, you know, normally it would be like an opportunity I could get out of the car and I could yell at her and we could both vent and we would both know that it's not really about this moment. It's about venting on everything in the past two months, right? Uh, it, something just came over me and I changed my perspective like that. 
And I just all of a sudden thought about this lady. I pictured her, you know, someone's daughter. I was picturing picture think, people like they're my kids sometimes. Like, that's someone's Clark. That's someone's Luke. Those are my two sons. And I get out, and my whole composure changed. And I just said, hey, I'm sorry. I was, just, I was trying to help you with, you know, such and such and, and this and that. And she, here's the thing about it. I could have just said that and faked it. But she'd have known. She'd have known. It wouldn't have been the same. But, but the bottom line is it was authentic. It was authentic because for that moment, I, wasn't, I, I dropped something about myself. I, I really was acting as a person made with unleavened bread. I, I was acting on that freedom of being made with unleavened bread. And I, I, I just said that to her, and it just melted her heart. She apologized. She said, I'm so sorry. I said, no, no, no don't apologize. Just have a good day. You know, I, it totally changed the pace of her day, right? And I started thinking, I want to have more moments like that. Like, that's what matters in life more than anything. Like, that felt good. And I thought about it, and it's like the law is, is written on our heart, right? Loving our neighbor is written on our heart. And I thought, the, the, when, I'm, when I'm robbing myself of those moments, I'm, I'm just hurting myself. So, so through grace, it's not a works-driven thing. It's not like, oh, I feel guilty if I don't go be a better person to, you know, these random strangers. Um, no, it's, I want to do it because it makes me more full, because that's, I'm part of the body, and I'm, if I don't do that, I'm kind of missing out, right? So <clears throat> another moment happened where I'm driving. Uh, I'm on... I'm on on the road, on Lee Road, and I'm at, at a traffic light on a Saturday, and there's almost no traffic. I'm listening to Bob Marley. I'm just having a good time. This is great. Guy pulls up in the car next to me, playing this really loud R&B music, and he's got the speaker outside of his car, and it's so loud you could hear it from like two blocks away, and sometimes I've heard him from two blocks away. I know about this guy, right? And he's blasting out my music, and I'm just, my first instinct was, oh, man, you're violating my space. You're so rude. You do, do, do. But all of a sudden, boom, instantly, it was like I had this reset moment. And I, I, I dropped it. I just said, you know what? Just let it go, man. Let it go. And I turned down the Bob Marley, which I didn't need to because I couldn't hear it anyway. And, and I started listening to the music. And I was like, this is, I wouldn't buy the album, but this, is a, this guy's got a good voice. And this is a long traffic light. This, this is a pretty good song. Next thing I know, I catch myself, you know, maybe grooving just a little bit, you know. And... And it, next thing I'm thinking, that's one heck of a speaker. How did he find that speaker? And how did he, how did he do it? This guy's got a lot of talent. And I'm telling you, if the, if the window had bent down, I'd have gone over and given the guy a fist bump. I mean, he went from being an annoying guy to a guy I really cared about. And if that guy walked into this church tomorrow, my internal demeanor would be totally different, and he would feel welcome. And that's the magic. That's the special sauce. You know what I mean? So, so I was thinking about this as well. Like, what are some examples of, you know, how do, how do, how do, what am I going to do going forward? Like, how am I going to work this going forward? Um, work through this, this conviviality, this whole idea of things. And I thought about just certain things I'm going to do. I'm like, you know what? So, so one time I'm sitting at a uh, waiting room, and I was thinking about this. We talked about non-convivial tools, right? Think about what those people during the uh, Industrial Revolution that were arguing about non-convivial tools, think about what they would think of this. <laughs> This is the most non-convivial tool on earth, right? Pretty much ever in the history of human civilization, this thing closes us off from each other, right? The only connection is social media, and that's all phony. It's usually phony, and it makes people often feel terrible about themselves because everyone else elevates this fake life. So in some ways, it's the most, but we all need it, and we all use it, right? I've just, every now and again, started, like, not using it, even if it's awkward, like, in a waiting room, don't look at the phone. Even if I have nothing to do or think about, just look around, just don't. No agenda. Like, we always fill our time, right? We always feel like, oh, I've got a down moment. I'm going to do this. I'm going to check my text. What if every now and again you just don't do it? So I tried not doing it once and ended up getting a conversation. Yeah, really. 
This is the first time. I've, I've not done it maybe three times, honestly. I'm guilty of it. I'm guilty of it. I'm totally guilty of it, but I'm going to get better. That's the difference. Through grace, we mature. You know what I mean? I think we, we mature, uh, whereas religion doesn't really mature the same way. Um, so, so anyway, uh, <laughs> so one time I did. Next thing I get in a conversation with this lady sitting next to me, it turns out she's in the meeting I'm in. Now we have a bond. It changed the whole dynamic of that meeting, you know? Um, sometimes I, I wear the earbuds when I'm at Costco. I've been taking them out. And I'm just looking for moments, you know, just at the cash register, you know, that kind of thing, just any kind of a moment. Um, I, I want to mention something in the spirit of that. Um, there's, I think there's a misnomer when you, when you identify conviviality um, that I think people think that conviviality means you have to be an outgoing person. Um, and that's not true. I, I think you don't need to be an outgoing person. It's not, it's not what conviviality is. I think what, my wife is an introvert. Um, she loves the peace and harmony of a book uh, and just you know, being in her own world. Um, she's one of the most convivial people I ever, I've, I've ever known. She's the most, one of the most welcoming people. She cares so much, when, but she just needs to be at her time and place. That's the difference. Um, she uh, has so much empathy. I think conviviality is, is all about empathy. It's, it's, you end up caring for, for one another in, in a unique way, you know? Um, it, 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 again, it isn't about drinking. I mean, I, don't, I just don't think it's not really about parties and banquets necessarily. I think those more represent what conviviality is. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think basically what I want to mention in closing here well, one thing I want to do is, I, I had to do this, because I talked about the dog so much. I felt like I need to put up a picture of the dog, so you can at least see what the dog looks like. Can we put up a picture of the dog? Ah, there's the dog. Okay, that's our dog. So anyway, it's funny, because one of my prayers was that this dog would really get attached to Wendy, so he's so God does answer prayers, as you can see. Um, <laughs> um, and, and then closing up, one last, there's one last Paul scripture I wanted to read which is, I think, a very interesting scripture as well, which kind of backs up a lot of this stuff. And he talks about, um, for our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we conducted ourselves, this is 2 Corinthians 1.12. For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we conducted ourselves in a world in simplicity, in godly sincerity. Again, he uses the word sincerity. Not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. Um, I... I this is a, there are so many rabbit trails in this process that I didn't have time to share, and that's one of the hard parts of doing this, especially for your first time, is timing everything. So I did put some scriptures in there, and if you get a chance, just follow the rabbit trail. Uh, there's so much more context. You know, one of the things I, I forgot to mention and I, and with this, and I'm going to close here in a few minutes, um, one of the things I didn't mention is that, you know, when I, what put me on this serendipitous route was I, I got into the coffee business, and I didn't plan it. It wasn't part of my plan. I got in the coffee business because a friend of mine was selling huge amounts of marijuana and got busted, and I had to bail him out. And that marijuana was owned by a Mexican drug cartel. So it was very scary and weird and a lot of chaos, and I wanted to get the heck out of that world. And it put me out of that world, and that's when I started really listening to God. I became a believer right after that because I'm like, he, he saved me from so many layers of trouble, so many different times. It's ridiculous, the number of miracles. Um, an atheist would have a heck of a problem with my story. Um, so So... So anyway, um, so that's why I trust him. And, then, and this whole process of conviviality, it fits that same pattern of so many of the bigger decisions I made in my life where I ended up blessed with Wendy, with my kids, so many other things. Um, 
So I want to, uh, I want to mention something. This church, and, and I got to, I've got the opportunity to see behind, the, behind this, 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 the curtains, so to speak. There are so many good people in this church. And there is a lot of sincerity in this church. And there are convivial people in this church. And there are a lot of people with, and this is the biggest one, discernment in this church. The spiritual discernment in this church. And there's one guy in particular that I've been thinking of a lot in the last two months. Because I really appreciate the heck out of this guy. Um, and he's a guy that he's out there every time. He's, you, most of you have met him. He's greeted you at the door. He's out there putting the signs up every morning and the banners. And um, he, to me, is like a champion of conviviality. And so I want to just mention uh, Martin Durchie. Martin, could you please stand just for a minute? Can you just give him a hand? And thank you so much. You're, Martin, you are, you are really loved in this church. You really are, and you're totally appreciated. Clark, could you, we have something for, for Martin. Marty, could you, uh, could you bring that over to Marty? This is my son, Clark. Thanks, Sal. Appreciate that. Sal handed it up to Clark. Clark handed it up to Marty. I like it. Teamwork. <laughs> so... Um, so, okay, I'm gonna, I just want to read one scripture to close here. Um, Jesus, Luke 36, I mentioned that before. That was before the non-convivial lunch. Therefore, if your body is full of light, without any part, it will be wholly illuminated, as when the lamp illuminates you with its light. There's nothing more attractive than a person that makes you feel non-self-conscious, a person that's welcoming, a person that has that heart, a person that makes you feel like you're in that warm room, a person that makes you feel the way Rosefield when she was dancing, and there's just not the cares of the world. Freedom from that. That's why I think the church is going to grow, because I think through grace we're acknowledging that, and we're going to grow in that. There's a song, there's a song by Coldplay called Fix You, and there's a, there's a couple lines in that song I really like, and I apply them. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and I think about the fact that we are now the light of the world because we're all one body because of what he did on the cross, tying it into communion. There's a song called Coldplay, and in that song it says... Lights will guide you home and ignite your bones. I was thinking, you know, people, people are lonely. People are, are scared. Uh, people are just, they're craving authenticity. People are craving authenticity. And we, in, as the body of Christ, we are the light. So we have an opportunity to, to guide people home. And we have an opportunity to ignite their bones get them excited. So I just want to pray for, um, just in closing in, in prayer, um, let's pray real quick. I, 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 Lord, just thank you so much for um, the vision that you have for this church and for the rest of the world. Thank you so much for the freedom we have in grace. Thank you so much that we are one body. Thank you so much for the fact that we have the ability to be truly sincere and truly authentic and we're in a position to do something that the world has never seen before. We've never had the freedom like we have before, and I don't think the church has ever been able to act to the fullness of grace. And, and, and thank you that for what you're going to do with the church. Thank you that we are branches on a vine and that we bear so much fruit and that we're, we're not like the traditional church encouraging people to be that vine that goes astray. And even if it does go astray, Jesus will grab it and graft it back into the vine. But help us be leaders throughout the world, Lord. Help us be leaders in our prayer. Look, help us find reset moments. Help us all pray for reset moments. I believe that every single person in this room will have a reset moment if you pray for it. I believe you 100% will do it. Lord, I pray that you will change our lives. Help us grow more 
in grace and understanding so that we can project outward so that we're not in bondage to thinking about ourselves and we can use that energy for the world and want to do it and become more whole in doing that and following the promptings of our heart, Lord. Help us follow the promptings of our heart. Help us love our neighbor because that's what makes us fuller and wholer. Lord, help us not get caught up in works in the distraction of that, Lord. Help us not take that rope off to the left where you climb up the cliff and you keep falling in the water and you keep climbing up the cliff and falling in the water tirelessly when there's this little, little this basket over behind the bushes that, that, that seems to be hidden, but it isn't. You get in that and, 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 and all of a sudden it gets lift, we get lifted up to the top of the cliff without our effort. We just have to move the obstacles out of the way, Lord. Help us move those bushes out of the way so we can get in that basket because when we're up there, the sunrise is so fantastic. We love you, Lord, and thank you so much for this church. In Jesus' name, amen.